Uh, if you haven't figured it out already, you have a worship guide in your seat, it does have today's scripture there if you'd like to use that. Um, you're also welcome to, of course, use your Bible, your app if you have that as well. Um, and then a few people have one of these little things from Johnson City. All right, well, good morning, and again, welcome to, to Redstone Church. We're very, very excited to be gathered here together with you guys. Um, before we kind of jump into today's uh, the passage and scripture and, and what God has for us today, um, I have a few questions. You don't have to actually answer these out loud unless you just really want to get into it. Um, these are more for you to kind of ponder, right? Um, but what I, what I wanted to ask you was, when you guys think of the, the perfect church or, or church service, what kind of things come to mind, like the ideal church? I'm sure we all have different opinions, right? What's this kind of good service like? And these are really important questions for us to ask as we kind of begin this new new church site, right? Um, but what kind of things do you look for? Do you look for like a really welcoming atmosphere with, with smiling faces in the room? Uh, maybe you come to have some sort of modern worship with the volume just loud enough that you feel comfortable singing, perhaps. Maybe you come looking for really strong, gospel-centered, exegetical preaching. Or maybe you're, you're more interested in good services for your kids and some decent coffee for yourself, right? I don't know what you may be looking for, but I imagine we all have these different opinions as far as what we're looking for. Maybe it's a, a bigger church or maybe it's a smaller church. Maybe there should be a stage and lights, or maybe it should be in a living room. When we think of a church service and what it should look like, we all have our own thoughts and opinions that we come into it with, right? Um, certain expectations that we have of what that should look like. But a, perhaps a more important question we don't always take the time to ask ourselves is, what kind of worship does God want us to have? What kind of worship service would be most pleasing to Him? Have you ever taken the time to think about that? I don't know about you, but for me, it's a lot easier to think about those other questions, especially at this stage in a new church plant. But it's really important to stop and ask, what does God expect from us in our worship? What does that worship look like for us? Um, so what you need to know um, for, for, for today in Johnson City, our other campus, we've been in a series on, in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, so it's been going for a few weeks now. So for you guys, it sounds like just one random sermon in Ecclesiastes. But for us, it's a continuation in a series. So I want to kind of catch you up um, today of like where we have been, just kind of real quick. So we're hopefully all at least more or less on the same page. Um, so what you need to know, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer really loves to use the word vanity, right? And it's important to understand what that word means. The word vanity actually means um, something like vapor or smoke or breath. And so what the author is telling us, the writer, he's saying that everything in life is short-lived, right? Um, and the first few chapters, he goes into all these different things that we tend to seek in our lives that are also just short-lived things. So he talks a little bit about wisdom-seeking, seeking that knowledge. He talks about pleasure-seeking, righteous living, or for some of us, maybe work workaholics, because we really love our work. And he's telling us all these things are, are short-lived because our life is like a vapor. And no matter what we do, we eventually all pass away. And so all these things that we're doing will pass away as well. They're all in vain. They're vapor. The, the next couple chapters, the, the writer goes on to tell us about how there is a time and a season for everything in our lives. So whether it be good or bad, there is a season for that. And elsewhere in Scripture, uh, we can see that God is sovereign over all things. And so ultimately, we can trust him through those seasons. 
And then Ecclesiastes, it also talks to us about our work and finding joy in the work that God has given us to do, because um, we should do all things for his glory. And then we, we make it to today. So we're in chapter 5, if I haven't already told you, chapter 5, in the first seven verses of, Ecclesi- of that uh, chapter. Um, but in this chapter today, what we're looking at is our worship and this worship that God has called us to and how we can do that for his glory. So let's go ahead and read the passage. Let's go ahead and go ahead and read the first seven verses of chapter 5. And the word of the Lord says, Guard your steps when you go to the house of God. To draw near to listen is better than to offer the sacrifice of fools, for they do not know that they are doing evil. Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God, for God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few, for a dream comes with much business and a fool's voice with many words. When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you vow. It is better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the messenger that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For when dreams increase and words grow many, there is vanity. But God is the one you must fear. So I think whenever we look at this passage, um, what it kind of highlights for us, there's a little bit of an issue that, that can come into play. And I think what we can see in this passage is that it is possible for us to do really churchy things and yet to be sinning. Or as the author of Ecclesiastes puts it, to be doing evil. Now that statement might sound a little bit shocking in a church, right, to say that. But it is possible for us to come to church to say the right things, to sing the right songs, and to do the right things, and yet, in our hearts, potentially to still be in sin in that process. I think we can look at everything else that the author of Ecclesiastes has said and, th- and think, well, like those things make sense. I see how you can do those things and be sinful, right? Going back to those first couple chapters, you know, the world may tell you, well, you know, if you just gather all kinds of wisdom, if you're the smartest guy or girl in the room, then you're good to go, right? Everybody will know that you have it together. Or it may tell us, you know what? Just seek and do whatever it is that makes your heart happy, right? Anything that brings pleasure to you, you do that, and don't let anyone tell you that you're wrong for doing it. The world may tell us, you know, your righteous living, right? Being a good person is where it's at. And as long as you look like you're doing the right things and not doing the wrong things, then everyone will think that you have your life all put together. Or the world may tell us, you know what, in your work, if you just climb to the top of that corporate ladder and set yourself up with a really good retirement, then you finally made it in life. So I think it's easy to look at those things, um, whichever one we may identify with the most, and see how those things can be sinful, right? Those things can become the ultimate thing and take the place of God. But when it comes to our worship, that may be a little bit harder to grasp or a little bit harder of a pill to swallow. But how many of us have allowed ourselves to stop and think that we may be finding meaning in our lives as being a God worshiper, right? Our hearts may be in the wrong place because it is possible to worship God, to gather together with his people, to sing songs to him, and yet for our hearts to be in the wrong place in it. It is possible to do the right things, say and sing the right things, to hear the right things, 
and to be in sin. Because it's easy to get up, caught up in trying to either please God or maybe please mankind as well. So it's possible for our hearts to be sinful. In this passage, what I want to do is kind of walk through it with you guys. You'll see that the word fool is used three different times. That sounds kind of harsh. Um, but there's also four different imperatives, which mean commands, or in this case, teachings on worship. And I think what they can highlight for us is ways that we should worship and also ways not to worship. So I want to go through each of those four imperatives real quick, make sure we understand those, see what it is that the, the author of Ecclesiastes has to tell us about our worship before we move on. So the first imperative that we see, the first command that we see, is to guard. It says, guard your steps when you go to the house of God. Now before we really jump into that imperative, it's important to understand what it means by the house of God, right? So when you look at the Old Testament, which Ecclesiastes is in the Old Testament, and you look at the worship that's, that takes place there, um, there was, of course, the, the temple that Solomon built in Jerusalem, and that was the place for God's people to go and to gather together to worship. And it was very specific in regards to the details of how it was to be made, how many rooms there were, where they were placed, how it was to be decorated, and all these different things. And there was one specific room that was the room called the Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was. It also was to represent the, God's presence with his people. And it was shut off from where they were able to worship by the veil. And we'll come back to that in a few minutes. But this veil it separated God's people from himself because of their sin. But after Christ died on the cross, that veil separating God's people from himself was torn in two. And so that signified that God's people were no longer separated from him, but they could pray to him and praise him directly. And that's a really big deal for us, as we'll come back to later. But it can be easy for us to look at that and think like, okay, so we're supposed to gather corporate worship or at a temple, right? And the Old Testament is different than now, right? But actually, even in the New Testament, we are called to gather together in cor corporate worship, right? So when it says to gather to the house of God, that still has significance for us in our life today. We can see it all throughout the, the New Testament. In 1 Corinthians 14, it talks about orderly worship that is described for God's people when they gather. In Hebrews chapter 10, Paul speaks about um, that we're not supposed to neglect gathering together for worship with God's people. And even in the book of Revelations, we see that Christ is writing to the churches, right? To God's gathered people. So Ecclesiastes is not just talking about the house of God. It's talking about when we gather together to worship, whether it be the temple in the Old Testament, a standard church building, or a boys and girls club, right? We're to gather together to worship. But going back to that imperative and talking about guard our steps, I want us to really understand that word guard because that's going to help us to understand how we do that in our own worship. So the word guard itself has many different meanings. It can mean to watch over, to protect against damage or harm. It could be a person who keeps watch, a defensive posture, or a posture of caution, vigilance, or preparedness against adverse circumstances. So that's kind of the overarching meaning of the word guard. But the writer of Ecclesiastes is telling us to be vigilant and prepared when we gather to worship. And in fact, I think this this preparedness for worshiping begins before we ever step foot in a building like this, before we ever step foot into the gathering place. See, it happens on Sunday mornings when you're rushing around getting yourself ready or if you have kids trying to get your kids ready. It happens on your way to church when somebody cuts you off on the highway. It happens on Saturday night when you stay up too late watching the balls lose again or hanging out at a friend's house. 
right? It happens before you ever step foot in a gathering place. Last month when we had our first pre-service, my goal was to be here really early, right? Get my heart ready, make sure everybody's in place, everything's in place because it's our first one. And of course, that's not what happened, right? I'm running late and on my way here, I get a phone call. Hey, there's no toilet paper in the men's bathroom and we need an HDMI cord for the kid's projector. So I'm like flying down Broad Street and Elk Avenue. I'm like rushing into Walmart, running around, finding stuff. And I get here like five minutes before we have our little meeting at the beginning and pray, right? So needless to say, I wasn't quite ready to step into worship and to lead in that, in that space. But in preparing for worship, it happens before we ever come into a space like this. And we have to, to pray and to gather deliberately and thoughtfully. And that battle begins before Sunday morning happens. Now you may be thinking that I'm taking church just a little too seriously, right? But stop for a second think about who it is that we're gathering to worship. He is the God creator of all things, including you and me. He is God the Son who came and died in our place on the cross, taking away our sin and our shame. And he is God the Holy Spirit who gathers with us, dwells within believers, and was sent by the Father and the Son to be our helper. You see, foolish worship means that we gather without thoughts, without prayer, and without reverence. And as scary as it is to say, it is possible for us to be in a space like this to do and say the right things and to still be sinful. So the first command is to guard, to prepare, right? The second imperative that we see in the passage, continuing with those commands, says to not be rash. So specifically, the, the author here is speaking of our mouth and our words. And this concept, it isn't really foreign to us when we think of interacting with other people, right? And how we um, hear what they say and speak in return, right? And James chapter 1 tells us to be slow to uh, speak and quick to listen. And so we understand when we, act, we interact with other people that we shouldn't be rash with our words, right? We need to, to be patient and thoughtful. But in Ecclesiastes, we're being warned about our words to the Lord. It says, Be not rash with your mouth, nor let your heart be hasty to utter a word before God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Now that's interesting for us, right? Because when we think of what a worship service entails, we imagine coming and singing songs and praying and hearing the Word of God preached, right? And all these things are good things, so don't, don't hear me wrong in that. These are good things that we should do as God's people. But the danger is that it is possible for us to come as if we have something to give away to God or give away to others in this space. We may think, well, I'm going to go and praise God because He needs me to worship Him. Or I'm going to go and say just the right words in this prayer or up front during the announcements because other people need to see what it looks like to be a true God worshiper, right? We need to be leaders in some way, shape, or form. But I think that the question that's being presented to us is when you gather together for worship, is the posture of your heart one of coming to sit before the Lord? Are you coming to hear what He has to say to you? So why do you come to church? Is it because of solid preaching or good worship? All these things are good things. Do you come because of what you can give away in a worship service? Or do you come realizing that the God of the universe wants you to see Him 
as he is, as the creator of all things, including yourself, to see that he is deserving of every praise that you can utter with your breath, and to see that he wants you to speak or see what he wants to say to you from his word. There's a, the posture of our hearts is important in our worship. In the same verse where it's talking about not being too rash, there's an important distinction that's made that we really need um, to kind of sit in for a second. And it talks about how God is in heaven and we are on earth. And that sounds like a really simple statement, right? Obviously, God is in heaven and we're down here, right? We get that sort of thing. But it's actually truly profound because it reminds us that you and I, we're just the creation. We are only human. We are fallible and simple. We don't know everything. We're on earth. But God, God is in heaven. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He knows every single detail. He knows what has happened, is happening, and will happen as well. He is in heaven, and we are on earth. He is the creator, and he is who we gather together to worship. And so that's what we need to remember, right? We need to remember that that separation, right, where God is in heaven, even though he's with us, because that creates this better posture in our hearts. And so when we gather, whether it's in a traditional church building or in this space or wherever we may be to gather for worship to God, we remember that we are standing before his throne. And the posture of our heart should be one that is prostrate, right? Meaning bowed down before God, before him. And we shouldn't be rash in our words. We shouldn't be rash in our hearts. We shouldn't presume to know anything before God. In Psalm 46, verse 10 God tells us, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted among the earth. And so in your worship, be still and know in your hearts that he is God. He is deserving of respect and he is deserving of your praises. It's possible for us to gather to church to pray and sing the right songs and to be in sin. So don't be rash before God with your words and in your hearts. Now the third and fourth imperatives, commands, they kind of go together. Um, And they talk about not delaying and making vows to God and to not let our mouths lead us into sin. So both of these, they're talking about our vows to God. And, And that may seem like a concept that's a little bit more foreign to us in today's society, right? I don't really think a whole lot about making vows to God. It's not something um, as readily talked about in the church. But it's simply just promising to do something for God in return for him doing something for you, right? It's this concept of, God, if you scratch my back, I'll be sure to scratch yours and do something in return later in repayment. So has there ever been a time in your life where you wanted something so bad that you made a deal with God? God, if you will only help me to get a better job, I'll be sure to give more money to the church. Or if you will only give me a spouse, then I promise I'll do more for your kingdom. Or maybe you've had some sort of like camp-like, really high spiritual moment before in your life um, as a kid or as an adult. And during that moment, you may think like you're going to promise to live your life completely differently for God, right? And that's a good thing. You should do that. But did you follow through? When you made these vows, did you keep your end of the bargain? You see, in this passage, the writer of Ecclesiastes is warning us not to be too flippant with God. He's saying, be careful not to worship God without first quieting your hearts before him. 
have a posture of being bowed down before God in reverence for him. And now he's telling us, don't be flippant with our words. Don't be so casual with God that we're willing to make bargains with him that we're not willing to keep. We should have the utmost respect for him and take any vow that we may make absolutely seriously. And this is mentioned other places in Scripture as well. So in the book of Numbers, Moses writes and it says, This is what the Lord commanded. If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. See, God takes your words very seriously. So don't be quick to speak and don't be quick to make vows. Elsewhere in the New Testament, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus tells us, Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say simply be yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. See, Jesus tells us it's better not even to make a vow at all than to make one that you're not willing to keep. So in your hearts, be reverent towards God. Be slow to speak, slow to make these sort of vows. Because it's possible to have very good intentions in the moment, right? To be very you know, caught up in the moment and feel very close to God, which is a good thing, and to say you're going to do these things, and yet to be in sin because you don't do it later on. In verse 6, why should God be angry at your voice and destroy the work of your hands? See, God takes your words very seriously. From our worship, to our prayers, to our vows, our words matter to God. So are you respecting Him in your hearts and with your words? The benefit of, of God's word, though, is that we don't just have to set in like these things that can be wrong, right? There is still good because Christ has come. Right? And there's always the good news of the gospel. So in terms of this, this type of worship that God's calling us to, in being reverent towards him, um, where we are being urged to worship God with this reverence, it is ultimately truly impossible for us to do so. Right? It's impossible to completely guard our steps before we come in this space. It's impossible to, to have the right heart before God and to be slow to speak because we come in with all kinds of things going on. Right? It's really difficult us to do that. But this type of worship that we're called to, it's only possible because of what Christ has done, because he has made a way. I want to go back to it for a minute to, to that Old Testament worship before Christ came, and specifically thinking about Jesus and just everything that worship entailed, because there's a whole lot to it, right? There were sin offerings for individuals, for the corporate body, and for, for God's priests that were making those sacrifices. There were specific festivals and feasts that you're supposed to come and, and partake in. There were specific places in order to be able to pray and to worship and to offer those sacrifices. And then, of course, don't forget those, that Holy of Holies, right? In case you don't know a whole lot about it, nobody was allowed to go in there except, right, there was the chief priest. And he could go into the Holy of Holies, but only one time a year during the Day of Atonement and only after a really lengthy process of cleansing himself could he go in there? And then get this. Even when he was allowed to go in there, they tied a rope with a bell around his ankle so that if he sinned before God and he died, they could drag him back out. Right? 
And then for Gentiles like you and me, people who are not Israelites, there was a whole separate space, right? They couldn't even go where the rest of Israel was in order to worship God. There was a whole separate space for us to be able to go and pray and to worship God as well. And so it was impossible for them, just like us, for them to follow through with this type of worship that God has called us to. And ultimately, that was the point, right? See, the law is in place to show that we need a Savior. And so the point is that we can't do these things on our own. We need a Savior to make it possible for us. But the good news is that Jesus came, right? And he didn't come to abolish everything in the Old Testament. He came to fulfill everything in the Old Testament. Because his death on the cross was the ultimate sacrifice for us in order to take away our sin and our shame and to grant us access to the Father because he redeemed us. And he literally broke the barrier that was in place between us and God. In Matthew chapter 27, we read, And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split. So the veil that separated us from God in that holy of holies was torn in two completely. And this thing was huge. It was 30 feet tall and 30 feet wide. It was a big veil, a big piece of fabric. And it was torn from top to bottom because of what Jesus did. And why is this important to us? Because it allows us to stand before God with confidence and to praise him with reverence. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19, it continues on and tells us, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, but the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful." So we are only able to worship God as he has called us to because Jesus has made it possible. So we no longer have to be perfect and have it all together. Right? Before, nobody could enter the Holy of Holies without dying. And now we can stand before the throne of God and we can sing to him directly because Christ has made a way. So this is the God that we worship when we gather together and he is deserving of our reverence and our respect. But whenever we hear a sermon like this, there is one, one danger that I want to highlight for us and make sure that we don't fall into. See, the danger that, that's here when we hear this is we might think that somehow we need to have it all together before we step before God to worship. Somehow we may think like, well, I, I didn't pray enough on my way here, or man, I yelled at my wife on the way here, or my heart's just not in a good place. I'm not good enough to worship God. Don't go there right? Don't do that. It's an easy trap to fall into that I do myself because I'm very works-based naturally and I have to fight against that, okay? The truth is that you are not good enough, right? And you can never be good enough and you cannot worship God as he has called you to worship him. It is impossible for you to do so. But because of what Christ has done, where he has purchased you by his blood and redeemed you and broken that veil that stood between us and God, we now are able to stand before God, and to praise Him, right? We don't have to be perfect because Christ was perfect. And so we can stand before Him and we can worship in spirit and in truth, and we are free to do so as His people. 
1 Timothy 2, 5 through 6 reminds us, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. See, Jesus, he is our mediator and he stands between us and God. And so when God looks at us, he sees his son, perfect and holy. Because of Jesus, we are able to worship God and our prayers are able to be heard. So don't allow yourself to think, I've got to have it all together. I've got to be in just this perfect state before I even worship God, right? That's not what's being said here. But come realizing that you have been forgiven of your sins and that Jesus has made a way for you to be able to worship him truly. So I urge you, whenever you come to worship God with reverence, right? You don't have to have it all together, but your worship begins before you ever enter this space, right? Your whole life is worship. But when in coming to gather together at the house of God, it begins before you ever step foot in this building. And remember who it is that you worship. He is the God of heaven. He is in heaven and we are on earth. He is God and we are not. He is sovereign over all things. He created you and me. So guard your steps when you enter his house. Prepare your hearts. Be slow to speak before him. Come with a heart that is ready to be both corrected and encouraged by the God of the universe because he is a personal God and he is here with us. And take the time to realize that you are able to worship him because Jesus made it possible for you. And if you are sitting here in this moment and you're thinking through these things, and you're like, I'm, I'm just not really sure that I'm there, right? Maybe you're not really sure that you're able to worship God because you're realizing that, that maybe you don't have that relationship with Jesus. Then don't leave here without taking the time to, to explore that and to pray with someone around you about that. Because Jesus forgave your sins. Don't rely on something that happened in the past and maybe your life never changed. He offers you eternal life. He offers you himself. And it's a free gift given to us. So if, you, if you're realizing that in this moment, don't leave. You know, grab somebody beside you and spend some time to pray to get your heart in that moment and to get it ready. So in, in a worship service, whenever we hear God's word, um, that's the revelation of God's word, right? And then we all have to take the time to respond to that. So what I want us to do is to be able to respond to this kind of moment corporately together, right? And to take a minute to, to quiet our hearts before God in prayer, and then even to pray together as well before we take the Lord's Supper. So what I'm going to do in just a minute, I'm going to give us a, a minute or two just to sit in silence for you to be able to pray and quiet your heart before God, right? Because remember, He is God and He is in heaven. And then what I'm going to do is to read sections of the Lord's Prayer, where Christ taught us how to pray um, in Scripture. And I'll just read a section, and you'll pray about that section. So for example, the first one, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so I'll give you space to be able to pray that to God, right? And so that is a way that we can use to help prepare our hearts to continue the rest of our service in worship, okay? So go ahead, take a minute or two, and just quiet your hearts before God. And then I'll pray each section, and you can pray that back to God.
continue to pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. enough to send your only son to die for us. We are so thankful that he has come and made a way that he has redeemed us to you. We're thankful that he has torn the veil that separated us from you and that even now as we pray, we are in your presence, we are before your throne, and you hear our prayers. We hear our praises to you. We thank you for your body, the church that you have created, that you have allowed us to gather together in your presence to hear your word and to sing to you and to pray to you. Thank you that you hear us. We pray that you will just continue to prepare our hearts, help us to worship you reverently in spirit and in truth, and may you be glorified in our feeble efforts to worship you. Thank you for your son, in Jesus' name.